Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Canada fails to successfully prosecute approximately 70% of money laundering cases. In British Columbia, opinion is strongly in favor of a public inquiry into organized crime and money laundering in the province. We spoke with Andrew Russell, global news reporter, about money laundering in B.C. and across this country. The campaign for the October 21st vote is clearly unofficially underway already. In Western Canada, Canadians are in favor of a Western Canada political party. And in the province of Quebec, the Liberals are in first place in opinion polling. And the Conservatives are tied with a resurgent separatist Bloc Québécois. Have a listen. Medical tourists from Canada are, in some cases, bringing back superbugs that are very, very difficult to treat. We spoke about that with Jason Tetro, microbiologist, the germ guy. Also spoke with Jason about the usual yearly question, do I have the cold or do I have a flu? And measles making a comeback, cases in Europe tripled. Have a listen. There's a really tremendous, and I mean this uh, very sincerely, I spend so much time reading news stories and I appreciate the truly great ones. And Andrew Russell, who's a national online journalist investigative for Global News, uh, wrote a piece that's headlined, Not Just B.C., Most Provinces in Canada Fail to Secure Convictions in Money Laundering Cases. And you can find that right now, that story, at globalnews.ca. And Andrew Russell joins us on The Roy Green Show. Andrew, thank you for the time. Thank you, Roy. So money laundering, a multi-billion dollar problem in Canada with estimates, I read in your story, ranging from $5 billion to $100 billion, according to the C.D. Howe Institute. That's massive money. Yeah, it really is a uh, a massive uh, problem. And as you saw there, even that estimate, you know, five to a hundred billion dollars, uh, it is a problem that we, you know, it's so complex that we really don't have a good understanding actually of of just how actually big of a problem it is in Canada. And it's something that needs to um, definitely be studied and looked at more. Let me go through the story uh, with your story. Conviction record for individuals accused of money laundering nationally is very low. You found that almost three-fourths of charges failed to lead to convictions. Could you speak to that, please? Yeah, so this uh, this investigation was stemmed by some of the great work that my uh, colleagues in Global BC and my colleague Sam Cooper have done looking into what's going on in BC. Now, I wanted to know if this is just a case that's isolated. Is it just a problem that we have in BC, or is it a national problem? So I was trying to find uh, stats on this. I went to the Public Prosecution Service of Canada. I went to Justice Canada. They said, we don't have any stats. So I was trying to figure out how best to get data. Um, I contacted Statistics Canada, and through uh, we did our own anam- uh, analysis using some data from that they were able to give us. And we, deter- we were able to find that um, over a 16-year period between 2000 and 2016, Canada's recorded just 321 guilty verdicts in money laundering cases. And yet you found that the U.K. and the U.S. are far more successful in prosecuting money laundering, the United States achieving an 85% conviction rate. 
Yeah, so we looked at just in just in 2015 alone, just in 2015 alone, that was the most recent uh, data that we were able to get from the Justice Department. Saw 727 people prosecuted for money laundering and 615 convicted for yeah, a conviction rate of 85%. Now you compare that to Canada's national conviction rate, which is you know roughly around you know, 27, 30, sort of in the 30, uh, 30%. It's just, it's not even comparable. Now, the data, as you point out in the story, comes amid growing calls for an inquiry into money laundering and organized crime in British Columbia. But again, it's a problem reaching every province. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it also affects, as you write in the story, Canada's reputation as a stable financial system, and it's become a utopia for money launderers. Yeah, well, this, this is actually kind of uh, one of the interesting things that I came across speaking with experts is that uh, one of the reasons why this is a, a quote from one of the experts, the reason why it's so bad here is because we're so good. So we have a reputation for, a, you know, a stable uh, sort of thriving financial system that's, uh, you know, is not like well regulated. You know, we, we do have a, a strong, uh, strong economy. Um but it's also because of the lack of uh, uh, lack of uh, overall investigators willing to look at like things like money laundering, financial crime. It's actually become a great place to uh, wash money. Yeah. Now, I, this next this next uh, piece of your story really staggers me. So, examining prosecution rates for these crimes in Canada is challenging for someone like you, who's doing the story, because no federal government agency collects the data directly. That's right. I, I, I was surprised, uh, as you were. I, you know, there's been uh, a lot of some talk recently about, you know, data gaps existing in, in Canada, and I think there's a major one here, is that we don't really have good records on the prosecution rates around money laundering. Um, the data that you know, Statistics Canada was able to give me. Uh, it didn't include information from Superior Courts in Prince Edward Island, Ontario, uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. Um, so, you know, it, it does leave out, you know, a, a good sort of picture of, you know, how big the problem actually is in Canada. And again, I go back to that range from five to a hundred billion dollars. That's a massive range. Yeah, uh, and I, I've heard it's, it's, you know, a 50 to 60 billion dollar problem. It's uh, when you're dealing with uh, you know this sort of dirty money. It's it's really difficult to get a good picture of you know how how bad things are. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned that you couldn't get information or data off on Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Quebec, New Brunswick, and Newfoundland. You reached out though to ten provinces for prosecution mm-hmm. outcomes for charges which deal with laundering proceeds of crime. You do have some numbers. You were able to get some numbers. Could you start, please, with British Columbia? What did you find out? So. BC was one of the first ones we went to because obviously there's been uh, the most sort of um, the most sort of news coming out of there uh, with calls for an inquiry. Um, but when we contacted the BC Prosecution Service, uh, they said that between 2002 and 2018, uh, just 50 cases were referred to prose- were referred for prosecution, and of of those, 34 people were charged with at least one count, and just 10 people were convicted. I mean, that, <laughs> I have trouble with that, with, with, with those numbers. <laughs> really, Over it is. a 16-year period. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Wow. Now, BC is a little different from the other provinces in that the way charges, uh, uh, charges there, they have to be brought uh, to a prosecutor 
who will then approve whether or not um, they will go forward with charges. So that could be one of the reasons why uh, the numbers are lower. But as you know, I spoke with a criminal defense lawyer there, and he said, you know, just what is going on with BC? They're not even making an attempt to prosecute people. Yeah, I mean, you wrote that BC casinos have become the laundromat for dirty money. Yes, and that was one of the sort of uh, main things that Global News has been reporting on for the last year, um, just looking at the uh, the problem there. Uh, there was a report that came out by a former RCP investigator, uh, former RCMP investigator um, Peter German, who identified the problem was around two hundred million dollars, if I'm correct. We were able to come up with documents and interviews with former uh, employees and investigators to find that the number was actually closer to $2 billion, according to our estimate. There's a big discrepancy there. So, yeah. And that's British Columbia. What about Alberta and Ontario? Uh, in Alberta, we found that from 2002 to 2018, uh, there were 422 money laundering charges. And of those, um, I think roughly 24 resulted in convictions. And Ontario? Uh, yeah, sorry. With Alberta and Ontario, I just wanted to qualify there. They were they were only able to give us the number of charges, uh, not cases, meaning okay. that their numbers, although they appear high, that like multiple people or one one individual can be convicted or um, uh, facing a number of charges. Okay. But in in Ontario, we saw uh, roughly thirty one hundred charges laid between two thousand uh, and six to twenty seventeen, resulting in just one hundred and eighty six guilty verdicts. Each one of those sets of numbers really gets your attention. You also write about uh, how Canada tackles money, money laundering. We have the Financial Action Task Force, or that's an international body, which issued a report which reviewed Canada on money laundering. Not terribly complimentary. That's right. And they had, uh, so the uh, Financial Action Task Force is an international governing body. They sort of do a, a sort of mutual evaluation between um, places in Europe United States and Canada, and in their last report in 2016, they identified and raised serious red flags with Canada's ability to prosecute money laundering. Uh, money launders. Um, they found uh, that between 2010 and 2014, um, of 35 prosecutions, they were only able only able to obtain 12 convictions in money laundering cases. Well, and then there are the little sidebar—not well, little necessarily, but the, the sidebar stories that really impact on you. When you read, for example, as I did in your story, El, El Chapo Sinaloa Cartel reportedly made almost $3 million a day in Canada, according to a DEA agent. That's right. And for that story, I spoke with a former uh, RCMP investigator. He uh, largely dealt with organized crime in B.C., and he said it makes to uh, absolute sense to him that uh, El like a Cartel international crime syndicate like that would target Canada because of our sort of weak uh, sort of lack of resources to really deal with this with these complex financial crimes like money laundering. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. The story is not just B.C. Most provinces in Canada fail to secure convictions in money laundering cases. It's by Andrew Russell. You'll find it on globalnews.ca, and Andrew is a national online journalist and investigative with Global News. Thanks, Andrew. All the best. Thank you so much, Roy. Back to the issue of uh, money laundering and specific to the province of British Columbia. That is uh, well, the, uh, the, the nucleus of, of, the, of the national story now, 
And joining us on the program is our good friend Mike Smith, Vancouver Province political columnist and CKNW radio host. Mike, thank you so much for the time. And just for our national uh, information, can you give, provide the scope of, of, of what this story is all about? Roy, thanks for having me on today. The The reason that there is so much interest in this issue in British Columbia and growing demands for a public inquiry into money laundering is the scale of the problem and how it has impacted innocent citizens. Because what we're learning is that a lot of money that flows largely from illegal drug dealing has been laundered in government-regulated casinos in British Columbia and also plowed into the Vancouver real estate market. And it really hits home with citizens across the board in the province because the average cost of a detached house in Vancouver is 1.6 million bucks. The, the price of a home in the suburbs of Vancouver can cost a million dollars. Who can afford this? Nobody. On top of that, you got astronomical numbers of people dry, dying from drug overdoses. Nearly 3,000 people over the last two years have died in B.C. from drug overdoses, largely due to fentanyl. And the drug dealers launder their dirty money in the real estate market. So you got thousands of people dying. People can't afford to buy a home in the city where they grew up. The money is laundered in government-operated casinos. And it's kind of like this very sinister sort of jigsaw puzzle that's been put together, I think, for people. And they see how it all fits together. And it's outrageous. And people are angry about it, and they want something done. And a lot of people are calling for a public inquiry into it, Roy, in, in B.C., the official position of the provincial government is maybe they'll hold a public inquiry. It would likely require some kind of cooperation from the feds, but they certainly don't seem too anxious to have one either. So that's where we're at right now. now Trudeau was noncommittal on this, but there's also an independent yeah. review of BC casino money laundering that concluded the casino operators were unwitting victims of money laundering. I guess that one's going over really well. Yeah, I mean, every day there seem to be new revelations on this about the scale of it. I mean, we're talking in the billions of dollars here, and it's got a lot of people upset. A lot of people want this public inquiry in British Columbia to get to the bottom of it. Now, there is a jurisdictional problem here, a challenge. Can a provincial public inquiry here investigate federal agencies? Because some of the key players here are federal bodies, primarily the RCMP and FinTrack, which is the federal agency responsible for detecting and preventing money laundering in Canada. So both of these agencies would have to be conceivably called on the carpet here to explain uh, what happened. Now, would the federal government be willing to launch a joint public inquiry with the provincial government, or could Prime Minister Justin Trudeau potentially order federal officials to cooperate in a provincial inquiry? Not impossible, but you have to wonder if Trudeau wants to avoid that kind of scrutiny, inviting potentially negative political damage in a federal election year. I, I don't think he wants to go there. I mean, on Friday, you had Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau say money laundering is at the top priority for the federal government. He's promising some kind of crackdown. Earlier on uh, in the week, Trudeau said his government's looking for answers on this file. He says he's asked Bill Blair the Federal Minister of Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction to take the lead on it. So certainly tough talk coming from the feds on this, Roy, but 
it doesn't appear to be any keen appetite to cooperate in a public inquiry, though. You know, I just spoke with Andrew Russell uh, from Global News about the, uh, he did a tremendous story today, and just fundamental to the issue nationally, Canada fails to successfully prosecute approximately 70% of money laundering cases. We're just not, we, we don't do it very well. We don't seem to be doing it with a tremendous amount of pun intended conviction. Meanwhile, in the United States, they have an 85% conviction rate. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons why there's this growing demand for this inquiry. And it was, it largely started back in November with the collapse of this major money laundering case in court. It was codenamed E-Pirate by the police. It was nearly four-year-long investigation into international money laundering in B.C. that probed the activities of an alleged underground illegal bank in Richmond, billions of dollars in drug money. Uh, they, they investigated the role of B.C. casinos, real estate purchases. There were five counts of money laundering laid and, and other allegations of criminal activity against a B.C. company and two officials here. This was the big one. This was a huge investigation and a lot of hope that this would be a groundbreaking case. And the whole thing fell apart in, in November. The charges were stayed. The case collapsed. There were reports that the, the, the case had been bungled by investigators because it, it apparently they had mistakenly revealed the identities of some secret police informers. Right. So this is a disaster that this case fell, fell apart okay. uh, late last year, and it's just increased the demands for a public inquiry here in B.C. Mike, always appreciate the time. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Roy. Mike Smith from the Vancouver province and CKNW Radio. When we come back, we'll talk to Sean Simpson. Uh, the this, this story about the money laundering in British Columbia is, is actually numbing. And then when you extend it beyond uh, British Columbia, across Canada, it is really so disturbing, as we heard from Andrew Russell. Um, examining uh, prosecution rates for money laundering in Canada is challenging because no federal government agency collects the data directly, not even StatsCan. But BC is the focus, and... Uh, Global News reports, uh, ask, ask a person from almost any demographic across British Columbia, and they're likely to tell you the same thing. They support a public inquiry into allegations of money laundering at the province's casinos, and that's according to a poll conducted by Ipsos Public Affairs on behalf of Global News. Sean Simpson is vice president of Ipsos, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show. Thank you, Sean. Uh, there's, there's virtual unanimity. If we're just looking at demographics, and uh, people's you know gender... If, all, it seems like all the parameters, people want this inquiry. Yeah, that's right. Uh, a lot of times when we ask a supporter opposition towards something, uh, you'll find maybe there's a, there's a group of people who don't support it, whether it be region or maybe younger people or older people, etc. But on this particular case, there's a, a general consensus brewing uh, within the province of British Columbia. Uh, and uh, three-quarters overall say that they support um, the government launching a, a public inquiry into the issue, and, and only a quarter oppose it. So uh, men, women, um, doesn't matter what your age is, doesn't matter what your level of education is, uh, any number of other factors that normally come into play and may, it may separate the numbers in a poll, it's consistent. People want this thing, and they want yeah, it now. That, that's right, that's right. And oftentimes what we see is that... Uh, uh, people who strongly support something may only be 10 or 20 percent, but in this case, we've actually got 34 percent strongly supporting, 42 percent somewhat supporting it. So it, it, people aren't just being polite and agreeing for the sake of doing so. Uh, they really feel that there should be an inquiry. And, and I think, uh, you know, there's a recognition that it's a fairly complicated issue, uh, and it's evolving every day. Uh, and, uh, and so I think that there's a desire to depoliticize it to take it out of the hands of the government, out of the hands of 
the VC Lottery Corporation and to get it into the hands of somebody who can, can cut through and, and, and uh, uncover the, the truth. Well, as you just said, uh, and, and I'm looking at a global story here, Ipsos has conducted polls related to public inquiries in the past, and support has run the range of about 10 to 20 percent. This one is massively uh, more supported. And, and I think it really speaks to what has happened, what's going on, and, and how many questions have not been answered, how much dissatisfaction there is, how much concern there is, how much fear there is, and it's galvanized the population. And it would seem to me to be wise to, uh, for provincial, the provincial government and for the federal government to get on with, uh, with, with announcing a public inquiry. Now, I think that some of the reasons why um, governments may be reluctant to, to do so, you know, aside from needing to live with the findings, um, is that there might be belief that it's, it's a waste of money or it won't actually find, um, get down to the truth. But in, in this case, we actually find that uh, most uh, British Columbians actually trust that, uh, that it will be able to uncover the truth. Um, they're not as concerned about, say, financial implications of, uh, of, of um, holding the inquiry. They're actually, I think, more concerned about um, the politics that may be at play in not calling one. Uh, and, and so this is a way of, of, of freeing the government from that, from that burden of political decision and, 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 and handling the issue itself getting it into the hands of a third party to get to the bottom of what is really, I think, quite a complicated issue. And, and, and maybe just, just one symptom of organized crime in British Columbia, of course, there are, there are other um, areas where we, there might be some, some activity, the real estate market, fentanyl crisis, etc. So this may be just one part of a larger uh, problem with organized crime within the province. All right, so now you mentioned fentanyl, you mentioned the, uh, the uh, uh, real estate market issue. People brought that up with you? Uh, well, we, we we posed a question to people about whether or not they think these are separate issues or whether they're all combined in 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 some way. And 63% of uh, of residents of British Columbia believe that they're all linked. It's all uh, part of a, a larger uh, problem with with organized crime within the province. And and so perhaps an inquiry isn't limited to uh, the the money laundering issue uh, in in BC casinos. Maybe it has an expanded scope and 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 looks at at this is just one part of of of, of the problem of organized uh, organized crime. Yeah. So so Sean, just summarize for us again, please, if you would, what it is British Columbians told you about what what has to happen or what they want to see happen as far as the public inquiry is concerned. Yeah, 76% support uh, the government launching a public inquiry into alleged money laundering activities at BC casinos. Um, only 54% actually trust that the BC government can act to the public's best interest on that issue. And I think that underlies, uh, underscores the reason why they want an inquiry, because 72% trust that it will get to the truth. There's less trust that the provincial government can do that without an inquiry. Sean, thank you for the time. Been my pleasure. Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos. So folks want a public inquiry. The people of British Columbia want a public inquiry. And it's no surprise, given everything that's going on, what they've found out and what they know. And the fears are that go along with billions of dollars being laundered through provincial casinos. It's a massive issue. And I think Mr. Trudeau has to get on board as well. It's not just the uh, provincial government, although they should take the lead. But the federal government seems to be uh, 
non-committal as well. It's an election year. I think Mike said that. A consideration. Everything is going to be a consideration now for the government and for the opposition parties. Every issue is going to be examined from the broader perspective of how is it going to affect us in the federal election? How is it going to affect us? Us. Well, this Ipsos poll, in what we know and what we found out from Andrew Russell in the Global News story, I mean, that it is, it is a really, really, really well-written story. There's really no room here to equivocate. Get on with it. If people across all sectors, both genders, um, demographics, everyone, by majority, by majority, the people want it and they trust it. Get on with it and have the public inquiry. And we really also need to find out I mean, look at look further into this whole issue about how few convictions are obtained in this country where money laundering is involved. The Andrew story again estimates ranging from five billion to a hundred billion dollars being laundered, criminal activity being laundered, criminally gained money being laundered in this country. Five billion to a hundred million dollars. The range is that wide because they don't know. And, and Andrew pointed that out. Exa- again, examining prosecution rates for these crimes in Canada is challenging. No federal government agency collects the data directly, not even StatsCan. Well, the campaign for the October 21 vote is clearly unofficially underway. Two key regions in this country for the election are the western provinces and, of course, Quebec. And in Quebec, according to Leger polling, the Trudeau liberals have a very comfortable lead among Quebec voters, while Andrew Scheer's conservatives manage only to effectively come in tied with the separatist and resurgent Bloc Québécois. What's going on there? We're going to find out shortly. But we're going to begin with Western Canada, and Angus Reid polling continues its review of Western Canadian attitude with its most recent polling release showing voters west of Ontario are open to a new Western Canada party. Let me just read you a few words. From Angus Reid, as Canada's federal party leaders woo voters from coast to coast in this election year, the latest public opinion survey from the Angus Reid Institute finds that in the country's four westernmost provinces, many of those voters are maybe looking for a new alternative altogether. The fourth and final chapter of the Institute's comprehensive study on identity politics and policy in Western Canada, and it has been uh, really, really useful, good information, looks at two potential consequences of the West's dissatisfaction with the federal government, separatism, which most Westerners think is unlikely, and the rise of a hypothetical Western and regional political party, which appears to have considerable support. Shachi Curl is the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute, and she's one of my favorite guests. I can say that, eh? You, I think you can say that. Well, it, well, if you mean it, you can say it, and and I and I take it with with great uh, humility, and and it's a very kind thing for you to say, Roy. Well, you are. You always well, have thank been. You. Thank um, you. Yeah. So let's talk about this. This uh, I, I find this fascinating because, uh, as you write in the the headline 
of the story, decades after reforms rise, voters open to a new Western Canada party. So why? Well, you know, it's interesting because there are a lot of things that Western Canadian provinces disagree on. The pipeline is one of them. Uh, Resource development writ large is one of them. And don't forget in Western Canada, as you have in all parts of Canada, really significant urban-rural splits. What people think in the interior of provinces is not necessarily what they think in the urban centers. All of that said, all of those differences acknowledged and noted, um, there is one thing that draws voters across the board in Western provinces together, and it is a sense that they are not well-respected, well-acknowledged, or treated fairly by Ottawa. If they agree on nothing else, people in B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba agree on this. So that opens the door, effectively, to a new Western Canada party, and your polling shows that they would do remarkably well in a federal election. Look, the thing doesn't even exist. Exactly. Oh, it did. But, but even at this time, we see that one in three, fully one-third of voters in each of those, it, across those four provinces, uh, say that they would be open to, they would vote for a, a party that was dedicated only to the uh, promoting the interests, the priorities, the needs of Western Canadian provinces. We don't have a platform. There's no such thing as a leader. It does, it's not a thing. And yet it has managed to capture the imagination of a significant number of people in those four provinces. And I think that is very much a sit-up-and-take-notice moment for all three party leaders. And the reason I say that, Roy, is because... Uh, Potential voters for a so-called Western Canada party would actually be drawn from not just the Conservative Party, but also from the ranks of the NDP and the ranks of the Liberal Party. There's, it gives the, the federal leaders something really significant to think about, because now you have people in four provinces having the same view of how they're treated. People in four provinces feeling identically that they're left out. And we talked about this, uh, I think it was last weekend, about the, the lack of fairness that is perceived to be uh, uh, by, by Western Canadians. They're not treated fairly by, by Ottawa. This, this no longer is a, a compartmentalized West as it might have been perceived earlier. This is a more unified West, unified around a dissatisfaction with the performance and the interest in the area by, from Ottawa. It is unified on that factor, yes. So, of course, we know, you know, Roy, I know, that Western Canada is not a monolith. People in uh, downtown Calgary think very, very differently from people in downtown Vancouver. But people in Van- downtown Vancouver think very differently than, than people in the interior of British Columbia. And so all those things sort of are, are factors that, that break Western Canadians apart. But if there is something, as you mentioned, that's bringing them together, it is the idea that it's about time we had a federal leader and we had a federal party that was doing more than being perceived to merely be paying lip service to, uh, to Western Canadian priorities and needs. And here's the thing, Roy. Um, you know, Western Canadian political action has been something that's, that's bubbled up and popped up over time, and, and that is why I invoked the Reform Party in the headline of, of, of that report 
Uh, it's come up and then it's sort of gone away. It's come up and gone away. We've seen this movie before to an extent, but here's how and why it's different potentially this time. Because for the first time, if you look at Stats Canada numbers, these aren't our numbers. These are this is empirical census data. Population growth is happening in Western Canada. It's not happening in Quebec. It's not happening in Atlantic Canada. It's happening in places like Alberta, despite the economic uh, problems that that province is facing. It's happening in British Columbia, where both the economy and people are feeling very bullish. It's happening in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, where people are looking for more affordable lives, better quality of life. And all of that is combining to a new generation of political and economic clout, it's on the back of people power. There's just going to be more people in Western Canada, and they're going to be looking for something different than, well, we'll take whatever Ottawa decides we get to have because they're too busy doing a deal with Quebec. Yeah, time to pay attention to the West. Really Mm -hmm. pay attention to the West. Shachi, thank you so much. Good talking to you always. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Roy. Shachi Curl is the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute. So my question here is, regardless of what the numbers indicate now, wouldn't the, like, as far as separatist um, attitude is concerned, wouldn't the presence of a strongly supported Western Canada political party inevitably, inevitably, um, when it's focused on the unfair treatment of the West by Ottawa, wouldn't it inevitably lead to serious consideration for a potential breakup of the Canadian Federation? We had the Premier of New Brunswick ask on this program just before Christmas. Is Canada a notion or a nation? Here's a little bit of a story from the Montreal Gazette. Justin Trudeau's Liberals continue to dominate the federal political landscape in Quebec, and a change in leadership of the Bloc Québécois has placed the party on an equal footing with the Conservative Party of Canada in the province, a new poll suggests. The online survey conducted by Léger Marketing for Le Journal de Montréal Uh, Places the federal liberals at 39% in Quebec, followed by the conservatives in the bloc with 21% each, and the New Democratic Party at 8%, just two percentage points ahead of the People's Party of Canada. Christian Bourque is a partner and senior vice president of Leger Marketing. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Christian, it's good to talk to you. It's been a long time. (laughs) Yes, it is. All right. So we cover a, a huge area of Canada with this program, millions of people in uh, in, in our coverage area. Uh, I would hope that the majority of people are going to get out and vote, but there's always a tremendous amount of interest in, in how Quebecers are going to vote because of the significance of the Quebec vote. I was somewhat surprised to find that the Liberals are so far ahead of the Conservatives and the Conservatives are tied with the Bloc Québécois. What's going on? Well, it, it, actually, if you look at the liberal number uh, at 39 percent, it's actually down from close to 50 percent uh, about six months ago. So uh, there is no honeymoon anymore for, for Justin Trudeau, but he's still pretty much alone on the ice right now uh, as we get uh, sort of set to, to head into a very long election campaign. A couple of issues, that, uh, I think, behind that. One is the conservatives have always struggled in the province, certainly in the modern era. Uh, only uh, Prime Minister Mulroney was able to get a majority of seats for the Conservatives in the province. Um, even during the best of years, uh, Prime Minister Harper could only get uh, just over 10 seats in the province of Quebec. So it's always been sort of a tough, uh, a tough race. At 21%, the problem at, at that number is that they're only four or five points away from potentially gaining seats in, in the province. 
Uh, 25% is probably the figure they should be looking at. Uh, but at 21%, they could win between a couple to 10 seats. Um, so they're certainly not in a comfortable position right now. The Bloc Québécois, now that the, uh, the war is over uh, internally, it seems that uh, they're finding favor with 21% of Quebecers. But again, this would give them between two and 10 seats. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, really what the story is, is the collapse of the NDP in the province. At 8%, all of the seats that the NDP presently hold in Quebec could be gone uh, come October. And most of them would likely go to the Liberals. So at this point in the, in the, in the game, um, the only one that clearly could gain seats in the province of Quebec is the Liberal Party of Justin Trudeau. Now, what about the People's Party of Canada? You have them tied with the uh, the NDP in this particular poll at 8%. Is, uh, is, is Maxime Bernier going to play uh, the role of significant spoiler potentially for whatever gains the Conservatives might be able to accomplish? Well, that's exactly it. Uh, if, uh, if the popular party of uh, Mr. Bernier gets even 3 4 5% of the vote, all of that vote is a potential conservative vote that will not be going to the conservatives. And, and if you look at how this unfolds uh, uh, on the provincial scale, they're at 13% in the greater Quebec City area. That includes Mr. Bernier's seat, uh, of course, in the Beauce region. So at 13%, um, in that region of, of the city of Quebec and, and uh, in the surrounding area, that is prime conservative territory. Uh, if Andrew Shear's conservatives are to do anything in the province, it needs to be done in that region and along the St. Lawrence River, uh, River going west. Uh, but right now at 13% in that specific region of the province, uh, Maxime Bernier is directly hurting uh, the potential for the conservatives. Is that number, that 39% number for Justin Trudeau, is that firm? You say he's dropped uh, 11 points uh, in, I think it was, you said, six months? Uh, yeah, actually, it, it happened uh, following the, uh, the, the, the the now famous India trip. Uh, well, about a year ago, from, yeah. About a year ago, went down from 50 to 48 to 47 to 43, um, and at 39 now. Uh, but that seems to be a fairly stable figure. Uh, the issue is, is when you transpose that into seats, and when you look at how badly the NDP is doing, uh, at 39 percent, this is still seed gain uh, territory for the Liberals. Okay, so uh, so Quebecers are poised to perhaps be the, uh, the 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 province that provides Mr. Trudeau with a with a with another government. Well, actually, uh, uh, Quebec probably will be a region that might secure a minority or allow a majority uh, at this point in the game, if you look at the national numbers. And, and the main problem is Quebecers traditionally pay little attention to federal politics compared to provincial politics. And in that, uh, and because of that, Andrew Scheer as, as an issue of just basically Quebecers recognizing who he is. I mean, Mr. Scheer right now could walk the streets of Montreal without any security because nobody would recognize him. Um, and, and that is a problem. There's only just these few months left for Mr. Scheer to become a political entity, to become a force in the province, uh, because right now he's battling, um, I would say, lack of interest uh, in the Conservative Party in the province, uh, and also just lack of awareness in the population. The fact that he's perfectly bilingual, will that potentially help him? Of course it will help. Uh, and, and his level of French is, I think, perfect for what we should expect from a federal party leader. So that will not be the, uh, what will bring Mr. Uh, shear down. Um, other issues, uh, for example, on, on energy, um, 
and and is stock of reviving um, sort of the the the, uh, the issue of, of pipelines will certainly not help the Conservatives. Uh, probably may not hurt them, but certainly will not help. And uh, and uh, I I think it's it's beyond just the, uh, its capacity to uh, to engage with the Quebec audience. It's um, it's the fact that he's not yet a familiar political figure in the province. All right. Christian, good speaking with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I'll call you again. Christian Bourke is the senior vice president and a partner at Leger Marketing, the polling firm showing Trudeau at 39% in Quebec, expects that to be a firm number. And uh, the Conservatives with Andrew Scheer tied with the Bloc Québécois, the separatist bloc, at uh, 21%. And... Uh, saying that if Mr. Shear walked down the street in Montreal, nobody would recognize him. Now, here's a very interesting story, and I've seen it several times recently. And uh, it has to do with health tourism, people who head off to other parts of the world in order to secure medical treatment, surgeries that can perhaps get faster elsewhere and maybe cheaper elsewhere, than they can in Canada. But there's a risk that goes along with that. And one of the risks, or there are risks, one of the risks is you may come home with a superbug that is particularly antibiotic resistant, and that's a danger to you, and it's a danger to everybody else. Measles have returned in significant numbers in, in Europe, and we have the annual question of do I have a cold or do I have a flu? Get over it. Sorry, just my attitude. Um, Jason Tetro is with us, microbiologist, our good friend, the germ guy, the author of the Germ Code and the Germ Files. His podcast is the super awesome science show on Curious Cast. Jason, thanks for taking the time, and let's start with the with the health tourism issue. What, what's where, where does the focus have to be on this one? Well, when you're going away from Canada and you're going to be getting some kind of medical procedure done. You have to remember, you are no longer dealing with the same infection prevention and control that we have here in Canada. Now, in Canada, you're probably looking at about one in every 25 cases potentially leading to some kind of infection, and usually it's just something that can be treated. When you're going to other countries, that can be as high as one in four chance that something is going to get inside of you. And then you're going to bring it home because usually there's some kind of incubation period. And then you're going to be sick. You're going to go to your doctor and you're going to say, I have a problem. They're, pro they're going to try and help you out, maybe give you an antibiotic or an antifungal, and it's not going to work, simply because you caught it in a place where there's a huge amount of multidrug-resistant organisms spreading around. And, you know, there's a, there's a CBC story. Uh, we're, we're holding up a floodgate. BC fights off superbugs mm -hmm. brought home by medical tourists. Yeah, because it's a new one. Um, we always hear about bacteria, you know, like the E. coli's and the salmonella's and the right. staphs. This is a yeast. It's candida. And I know there's a lot of people out there going, wait a sec, how can a yeast be antibiotic resistant? Well, it's not antibiotic resistant. It's actually antifungal resistant. Mm -hmm. And when you're using that antifungal, you're supposed to get rid of that candida. That's how it works, especially when it comes to things like yeast infections. But now we're dealing with Oris, which is incredibly resistant. Um, it's been around for 10 years, and now it's spreading around the world. So what's the message? Don't go or do your research before you go? Well, I mean, if you're interested in getting some kind of medical procedure abroad, then do your homework. Find out. 
And if they're not giving you information or you can't find that information, well, maybe it's probably best for you not to go to that place. Mm -hmm. Simple. Yeah. Measles. Yeah. What's going on? Well, you know how we call it cold and flu season? Yeah. Uh, it's cold, flu, norovirus, and measles season. Mm, can't get away from it now. I mean, we're finally reaching a point where uh, I think in 2018 it was something like uh, uh, 47 out of 53 countries 80,000 people ended up getting measles, and we're starting to finally see the deaths. Like, we've always said that was going to happen. So uh, 72 deaths last year, that's going to go up. Uh, it all comes down to the fact that, you know, people don't think that the vaccine is necessary because the vaccine helped to prevent all those infections. And, of course, when you're not vaccinating, you're going to get infected, and that's kind of the way it's working. And, of course, it's going to be the children that are going to end up having the problems, much like it was before the vaccine came around. So if the, you know, vaccine hesitation, anti-vaccine movement, whatever you want to call them, wants to continue going up against measles, then we're just going to see these numbers rise. Tripled in Europe last year. Yep. That's a big number. I mean, a big increase. Oh, it's, it was expected. Yeah. Back in 2015, uh, we kind of knew this was going to happen. And it was just a matter of finding out at what point we're going to reach the tipping point where people are no longer going to listen to these anti-vaccine people and movements and start realizing that, yeah, vaccines have been the reason we have been so good against things like measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus, pertussis, everything. We want those words to just be words, not experiences. Exactly. Yeah. Now... Do I have a cold? Do I have a flu? Each year, we go through this. Each mm -hmm. year, it's a question. Each year, it's a story. It is again this year. I'd like Mr. Tetro's perspective. Well, if you happen to be any kind of a football fan, you'll actually notice that sometimes you'll see a guy that's running down the field, and then someone's just going to take him out. That's what it feels like when you have the flu. You literally feel yeah. like you've been hit by a giant linebacker, and you're down. You've got high fever. You've got aches. You've got chills. You just don't want to move. You want to bury under a blanket and just hide. That's how flu feels. A cold, on the other hand, is really just the um, upper respiratory tract, your head, your sinuses. And, yes, you feel like life is just unhappy, but it's not going to be able to stop you from being you know, mobile, going around, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the initial reactions. The other thing is that a cold may take a few days to sort of go away. You may still have a cough for a couple of weeks. But when it comes to the flu, you're going to be down for about three weeks. And if you happen to have a weakened immune system, like someone who happens to be over the age of 65 or someone who's under the age of five, you're probably at a higher risk for going to the hospital because there will be complications. Well, uh, I, I, I want to tell you this. After our conversation of last weekend... Mm -hmm. I did have the flu shot. Oh, excellent. I went and got it done because I, I procrastinated and delayed, and I didn't like people chasing me down the aisle and telling <laughs> me to get, get, get the vaccinated. But after our conversation, I went and had it done. So excellent. I feel better. I just hope that you went down the aisle to that guy that was trying to solicit you the last time, showed your arm with the bandage, and said, there. I should do that. You should. <laughs> I should do that. <laughs> just get a bandage, put it on, go up to the guy and say, there you go. Come on. <laughs> Consider it done. Exactly. Thanks, Jason. All the best. Pleasure. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Jason Tetro. His podcast is the Super Awesome Science Show, and it's on Curious Cast. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. 
And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 